Hallelujah for the cross. The Apostle Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus. God, we've come to the time in this service when we open the Word of God to glean eternal truth from its pages and its words. Lord, if I preach my opinion today, then these people will not be blessed. If I preach some philosophy or some kind of ideology, they will not be blessed and strengthened. But your word, you said, would accomplish the purpose whereunto you sent it. O God, grant that we would leave here better than when we came. Grant, Lord, that as a result of this encounter with your word, we will glean truth that will strengthen us and help us, God, to be better in our service towards you. Touch me, O God, for except you touch me, I cannot preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 13. We're going to read the account of a nation of people that are gathered uh, by a stream about to cross over into a land that has been called a promised land. A promised land. How many of you know that God is faithful to His promises? That all of the promises of God are yea and amen. That God is not slack concerning His promise. But God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is a God who is faithful to His Word. And Jesus The God-made flesh man that dwelt among us said that the promise of the Father is a better way, a better enablement, a better deliverance, a better salvation, a better uh, source of strength and energy is the promise. And he said, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, And that promise is unto you. It's to your children, to your children's children, to them that are far off, as many as the Lord thy God shall call. So promises are attached to God's will for us of getting better. For every one of us in this house, we began a pilgrimage the day that we said yes to Jesus and invited him to come and sit upon the throne of our heart and rule and be Lord of our lives. We began that episode, that that journeying, as we say, toward his presence, and today finds me on my way up the highway toward God's presence, toward that eternal existence in the presence of the Lord. One of the great glories is that when we get to heaven, we will eternally be in his presence, that once we enter his presence, we will never leave his presence. Isn't that a great thought to attach to our heavenly promise? But the great promise that is so so prevalent in the early church and to the church today is Jesus said, if I go, I will come again and I will receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. The children of Israel, we know how they got there. They were hungry and didn't have anything to eat, but God had sent before them a a forerunner, praise the Lord. His name is Joseph. And uh, you've heard me preach from the pit to the pinnacle many times about the story of Joseph and his being sold into uh, slavery and uh, taken down into Egypt and how that God was with him and God blessed him even in that episode. You see, sometimes we think better is void of any kind of struggle or any kind of difficulty. We don't realize sometimes that the answer to our prayer is not necessarily better But the issue that we're involved in presently could be the better that God would have us to go through. God oftentimes has something better, but it's never realized without obedience and and faithful submission to his will, his plan, and his purpose. Where these people, this family, went down into Israel, they were just a, a, a small number. But after 400 years... The Bible said they numbered over a million people. Wow. Now we no longer have a family. We've got a nation. And the Bible said that the Egyptians, there arose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph and didn't know Joseph's God. And as a result, he put those people into slavery and into bondage. And they they worked and toiled. But God made a promise. 
He said to them, I'll send a deliverer. And while Moses was on the backside of Midian, God spoke to him out of a burning bush. You remember? What was the first thing God said to Moses? Take off your shoes. Take off your shoes. And he said, that ground upon which you stand is holy. We get from that, whatever separates you from what is holy, get it off and get it out of the way. Because you need to be right up against whatever is holy. You need to be in contact with what is holy. And the Lord said to him, I have a mission for you. I'm going to send you on a mission. I want you to go to Egypt and I want you to confront Pharaoh and I want you to tell him, let my people go. Let my people go. Brother, I want to tell you, that was a big, big deal for Moses because Moses had left 40 years earlier a fugitive and running from uh, the murder charge that was issued against him by the existing Pharaoh at that time. Now, the Bible said, by faith, Moses chose to suffer the afflictions of God's people rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Let's, let's say that again. By faith, Moses chose to suffer affliction rather than to enjoy. For him, suffering with God's people was better than enjoying pleasure without God and without God's blessing. He chose the most difficult and he chose the most ill-advised, but it was better because for him, it was a blessing that God was with him and God never forsook him and that God made him a great instrument. In fact, he became the pastor of all of that million people in, in Israel. In fact, he became their first leader, their first pastor, their lawgiver. He was the one that ascended Sinai and got the law, brought it down. But when he came down, he chose something that was better, but it was not without tremendous disappointment. Sometimes when we choose the better, what is it that book says, uh, one step forward, three steps back? Why is it sometimes better seems to us like it's worse? Sometimes we think we did the right thing and thought it was better, but it resulted in a more difficult situation for us. Because, you see, better does not necessarily mean that there won't be uh, uh, things to conquer and things to deal with. God said, go down there and tell them, let my people go. I'm going to use you. You're going to be a mighty force. But he said, but it's not without controversy and it's not without difficulty. For when Moses came down from the mountain, he saw that the people had already gone into paganism and had built them a golden calf and were worshiping and dancing and reveling around an idol God. Now, how would you like to be the pastor of a church that you go up to meet with God and you come back down and find everybody has apostatized, left the faith, and had another God? How would you like, Brother Don, to pull up the parking lot here one day and the Moniker on the sign outside said, Church of Baal. How would you like to drive by here and see over on the sign over there, uh, Church of Dionysus or Church of Zeus or Church of Apollo, Church of Thor? Wow. That's what Moses felt like when he come down from the mountain and they changed the sign on the church. It wasn't God's church anymore. It was Baal's. It was a golden calf. Don't you know that must have crushed his heart? Something he thought was going to be better had some things in it that were maybe worse as he would consider them. And he, because of that, he became so angry that he threw the tablets down and broke them into pieces. He was so angry, which necessitated going back and getting a new set of tablets made. And God was so patient that God repeated the episode and with his own finger wrote the tablets again. 
You know, sometimes God helps us fix our mess-ups. Sometimes we destroy things in fits of anger that God later has to come along and say, hey, let me help you a little bit with that. God understands. Because at one time, God became so angry with the children of Israel that he said, Moses, get out of my way. Let me destroy them. Wow. Well, at one time, God was so angry with us that he wanted to just wipe us out and start all over with Moses. Not Adam, but start all over with Moses. And God was willing to to do that. Moses said, God, we can't do that. And the Bible said that Moses interceded and intervened and said, Lord, you'll have to kill me first because I'm going to stand between you and them. And if you're going to kill them, then just get me first. No, I don't want to kill you, Moses. I'm not mad at you. Yes, but you put me here in this role. Wow, what a man. In fact, he's called the meekest man of all the earth. Isn't it something that the meekest man of the earth is also the leader and the lawgiver and the great, great prophet Moses? Wow. But he made a decision, but it wasn't what was better for him in some ways, but it was better for every one of us that he made that decision and he became obedient to that decision. Well, now he's got them out of Egypt. Hadn't got Egypt out of them yet, but he's got them out. And they're wandering around in the wilderness and they, they, they come to this place. They're ready to, to get, cross this stream and enter into the land of promise. And Moses said, we're going to send some spies out and let's see what we're getting into. Let's do some analyzing, some evaluating, and let's try to make a good conscious decision about this. Let's look out the land and see what it's like. So he sent out spies, 12 of them. Do you remember? Do you know two of them? Joshua and Caleb. And the Bible said this was at the time of the first ripening of the grapes. In other words, it was time in the Middle East for the grapes to be at their ripest and most luscious. And the Bible said when they went to that land that was called promised land, they discovered first was large clusters of grapes. And the Bible said that a branch on the grapevine was so great that the Bible said they had to put a pole and put that branch with all of those grapes on it hanging and put it on a pole and Joshua had it on one shoulder and Caleb had it on the other shoulder and they were going to bring that back and show to Moses and the children of Israel what they had garnered from their spying upon the new land. Well, in 40 days, they all came back, and along with Caleb and and Joshua, they brought milk and honey, and they brought all kinds of blessed things, wonderful blessed things. And now we find them standing here at, at this brook in Numbers chapter 13, verse 23. And they came to the brook of Eskol. Eskol means grapes, and it means wandering around on foot because of grapes. Eskol. And they cut down from thence a branch with one cluster, and they bare it between two upon a staff, and they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. And the place was called the brook Eskol because of the cluster of the grapes which the children of Israel cut down from thence. And they returned from searching of the land after 40 days, and they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran, to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this 
is evidence. This is the proof. This is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people are strong that dwell in that land. And the cities are walled and they're very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. Do you know who that was? That was the Giants. No, not the baseball team, San Francisco. They found big people, nine-foot-tall people. Yeah, children of Anak that were there. They be strong, they're walled, they're very great. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. And the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea, by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses. Now what does it mean to say he stilled the people? He got their attention and got them to be quiet long enough to hear him. I remember during one of the Easter presentations years ago, Jimmy used to play pilot, you know. And uh, the crowd was, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate was supposed to step up and say, silence, silence. And uh, Jimmy Hanvey was all, had his pilot garb on, and they were all screaming and hollering, crucify him. And Jimmy got up and said, hush, y'all. Well, you got to put a little Alabama and a little South into the story of the resurrection, don't you? He stilled the crowd and he got their attention. Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome this land. But the men that went with him said, We be not able to go up against those people. They're stronger than we are. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched under the children of Israel, saying the land through which we've gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people we saw in it are big people. They're of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Enoch, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. They thought we were grasshoppers, and we also thought we were grasshoppers. They convinced us that we were just grasshoppers. Wow. Children of Israel were standing there looking for something better. Something better. Something better than working all day under the cruel lash of the Egyptian whip, something better than having to endure the privation and the suffering of, of imprisonment by the Egyptians, something better, a land that flows with milk and honey, a promised land, but they realize that day it's going to take a lot of effort for us to possess the possession, possess the possession. Well, we've got two reports, haven't we? What is it they call them in Congress? The majority report and the minority report? Is that what they call it? Well, the majority report was this. Oh, we're in a terrible fix. We cannot do this. God is asking something unreasonable of us. God is requiring of us that we, we engage in something that's going to be so, so terrible for all of us. We're going to get killed. These people are warlike. We've never been, been taught how to fight. We've never been taught how to, how to use weapons. We don't even have any weapons. We've never, never used them, never had them, and don't have any now. What would we fight with? These people are warlike, the Amalekites. They're warlike people. Their cities are walled. They're fortified. The people there are mean-spirited and they inflict great pain on people that try to take their land. And we just better go back in the wilderness and, and just kind of make it best way we can because that promise is not attainable. But thank God for a minority report. Off oh, you're going to clap, clap better than that. 
a minority report. The majority is saying no. The minority is saying yes. Two. Two stood up and said, we are well able to take this land. God's will is for us to take this land. We need to trust God. We need to believe God. We need to take him at his word. And if God has willed it that we should take this land, then we should go immediately and enter that land and start realizing the goodness and the blessing of God, for it's better for us. Better for us. Well, it is better for us to obey God. And you know, you've heard this preached about Canaan land so many times as being heaven. Yeah, but Canaan is not heaven. Heaven doesn't have any giants. San Francisco or New York, no giants. Heaven doesn't have walled cities. Heaven doesn't have uh, battles to fight. There's no fighting in heaven. So this is not about Canaan being heaven. It's not about, about heaven. It's about a new area that's so much better for the people of God in the here and now. It is about territory that God wants you as an individual to conquer that territory and to claim that possession. He wants you to occupy. He wants you to drive out the evil forces and to take property and territory that rightfully belongs to you. God wants you to be more than a conqueror. God wants you to win the battle. God wants you to be a ruler of of that possession that he's promised unto you. And yes, there are challenges. Yes, it may not look like that you're strong enough to do it, but if God be for us. I said, if God be for us, then who or what could be against us? Because greater is our God than any problem or any difficulty any persecution, any disease, any privation, any evil decree by a despotic ruler, God is greater. God is greater. Uh, I said God is greater. God is greater. So it is, Canaan is symbolic then of a, a new life that's better for us in Christ, and it involves possessions that God wants a Christian to have, wants a Christian to have. I used to hear people say, bless the Lord, we're living way below our privilege as God's people. I think that's a pretty fair estimate. But God has privileged us so greatly that we should be doing a whole lot better. When the world looks at the church nowadays, instead of seeing people that are that are better, you see, until we can show this world that having Jesus and knowing Jesus and serving Jesus is better than what they've got. You can't find in the world anything better than what you find in the Lord Jesus. You can't find anything anywhere at any island in the Pacific or any beach or any paradise that the world boasts of that's better than what you have in the person of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Hey, that's that story I tell you so many times of that little woman there bathing the wounds of lepers in a leprosarium and a group of entrepreneurial philanthropists come through and they observe that little woman. And they they say to her, ma'am, I wouldn't do what you do for a million dollars. And she says, I wouldn't either. Because I don't do what I do for a million dollars. I do it that I might please him who called me and placed an ordained anointing upon my life. And for me, that's better. It's better than riding in your coach with your silk garments. It's better that I'm handling the rags of a leper and I'm healing and bathing the wounds of a sufferer. It's better for me that I'm here doing ministry and doing God's will than to ride in the coach with you with the cushions and the silk. 
and the wealth. Does that make any sense? So then serving the Lord has its challenges, but it's still better. It still has things that you have to exercise great faith, but it's still better. There are times when you have to sacrifice, but it's still better. There are times when you have to walk by faith and not by sight, but it's still better. There are times when things go bad and bad things happen to good people, but it's still better. There's times when you're challenged and you don't know what way to go and you don't know what direction to take or what door to open. It, It may be frustrating, but it's still better. It's still better. And I'm going to tell you now why it's better. The reason why it's better is, and let me just call them grapes, okay? Grapes. The first grape is that every one of us in this house have pardon for sin and have pardon for all of the evil, all of the things that would seek to rule our lives. We have deliverance from it. That's the best grape I got. To stand and say I'm saved. To stand and sing I'm redeemed by love divine. To stand and sing love lifted me. To stand and declare that I am free from the bondage of sin. To quote the scripture that says I'm translated out of the power of darkness into his marvelous kingdom of his dear son. To see and declare that darkness and evil no longer rules my life that I've yielded my servants as my members as servants of righteousness, that I am now in the family of God, that I'm saved, and my citizenship is in heaven, that I'm redeemed from the curse of sin and uh, the curse of the fall, that I'm delivered from that. The greatest thing I can tell you today about Jerry Irwin is I'm saved and I know that I am. What, how does that make it better, pastor? That makes it better because I'm delivered from fear that the death that comes to every person has no sting. Praise God, has no sting. I went yesterday to the bedside of a a dying man yesterday afternoon, and he was non-responsive. But I told him, I said, I want to tell you that God hears the prayer of a contrite person. I want to tell you, though you can't respond to me, you can hear me, and I know you can hear me. And I want you to know that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. And that if we will pray, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm glad I can say such sentences as that about the saving grace of my great God. One of the greatest, greatest possessions we have. One of the greatest grapes we've got on our cluster. It's the fact that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. That's one of the greatest blessings of new life in Christ is that we're free from the terrible atrocities attached to sin and all of its consequences. I'm just glad to tell you there's not a person living who cannot have his sins forgiven and stand before God as if he had never committed a single sin. The great grape of pardon for sins is an incomparable blessing and everybody can have it and we need above everything else to know that we know that we know that our sins are forgiven and our name is in the book of life. That's a great possession that makes everything better. That means that there is an expiration date on sin and Satan and evil and wickedness. Its shelf life is just about to run out. For one day very soon, the greatest blessing you could ever know will be that you're ready when the trumpet sounds, when the Lord comes from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. The greatest possession you'll have is the knowledge that I'm ready for the Lord's return. 
the greatest thing better than having a million dollars in your bank account. Pastor, you're telling me that there's something better than having a million dollars in my checking account? Yes, there's something better than that. What is it to know that you know that your life is hid with God in Christ? that sins are forgiven, cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness, and God said, I will remember their sin no more. As far removed as darkness is from light in the sea of God's forgetfulness, so far hath the Lord removed our sins from us. Wow. And the Bible tells us in Colossians that that law of ordinances that were written against us He has taken them out of the way. Oh, hallelujah. What a possession you have this morning in knowing that the accusations against you, all of the handwriting of ordinances has been taken off the table. Not on the table. How did they get removed from the table? Jesus Jesus, Jesus became the propitiation for our sins. He became payment in full for all the sin, all the transgression, all of the wickedness. God sent his son and his son gave his life, hallelujah, shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. And praise God, my sins are gone. Your sins are gone. What a great, great possession you have in knowing that your sins are forgiven. Isn't that great? Tell you about another grape that we've got on that cluster. It's the grape of peace in a believer's heart and mind. Peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 tells us that if when we were enemies, when we were enemies, when we were away from God, when we were alienated, when we were estranged from Him, having no hope, lost and without God in this world, If when we were enemies, if when we were enemies, Christ died for us, hallelujah, and he hath taken both, and of twain he has made one new man, so making peace. He hath torn down the middle wall of partition that was between us. What separated us from God, Jesus tore it down. That fence that existed there between you and God. Jesus at Calvary tore it down. I wish I could do what Ronald Reagan did. What did he do, Pastor? He stood in Berlin and he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear this wall down. And that opened up a new area, new era of peace opened up freedom for a city that had been divided and forbidden to come and go as they pleased. Why? Because the wall was torn down. Brother, I want to tell you when Jesus tore that wall down, brother, he opened up a new era of peace with God. Peace in your heart, peace in your mind. How does it feel to go to bed at night and sleep with peace. How does it feel to know when you walk around and peer into the cold, chalky face of a loved one as a pastor stands and pronounces them a child of God and into heaven? Why, how does that? It's peace, Brother Jerry. It's peace. You know, It's peace when you can walk around when a person is in the last few moments of life and you can look at them and say, are you ready? And they say, I am ready. There's nothing greater they can tell you than to tell you, I'm ready. Yes, that, that death comes to all. 
The Bible said it's an appointment that we all have to keep. There's no way of getting around it. There's no way we can break it. There's no way we can not show up. But for every one of us, it's appointed unto man once to die. But to die with peace. Voltaire, the great infidel, the great writer, the philosopher, when he died, he was an atheist. And he said, somebody, somebody, please help me. I'm sinking into a deep, dark pit. My feet are burning. Oh, God, have mercy on me. Ingersoll, the great agnostic, the writer, the philanthropist, when he died, he said, would you please just send a child into this room and play around my bed? I'm so tormented. I want to tell you, when it comes to that, that time, the greatest possession you can have that's so much better is the peace of God that will rule and reign in your heart and in your life. That presence of God, that being justified. Philippians 4 and 7 says, And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your heart and mind through Jesus Christ. The peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your heart and mind. Isn't that a great promise? What a, what a possession to have. I'm glad that's a grape on my cluster. I'm glad when I crossed over Jordan into Canaan's fair land, I found a grape on that cluster, and it said, peace with God. Peace with God. You know what that means? That means that I, I'm not anxious. That means that I don't have fear and anxiety. That means that I don't struggle. Praise God. It's a peace that helps you know that everything is all right between you and God. What a great possession that is for us. I'm hurrying, I promise. Third, as there's another grape on that cluster, you know what it is? It's the joy of victory through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Victory. Victory. The joy of having victory. It means a Christian doesn't have to live defeated. It means that sin cannot rule and reign over you. It means that nobody has to live a substandard life. You can live victoriously. You can be an overcomer because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You're not a loser. You're a winner. You're not a victim. You're a victor. You're not the tail. You're the head. Hallelujah. You're not condemned. You're not defeated. Praise God, you're, you're an emblem of victory in Jesus. You walk in victory. You walk in authority. Jesus said to you, I'm going to let you use my name. You use my name. What's so special about your name? He said, when that name is mentioned, the demons of hell shake and tremble. Fear strikes every demon. Every evil spirit begins to shake and tremble in the presence of the name of Jesus. At that name, devils come out. At that name, fevered brows cool and are quenched from the fire. At that name, people who are wretched and debauched are made new creatures in Christ Jesus. At that name, miracles happen. At that name, rivers part. At that name, fire falls. At that name, there's victory and power and faith for all of God's people, whoever they are. Jesus, my Savior forever. What a joy there is in knowing Jesus. A thousand, Psalms 91 and 7, a thousand shall fall at thy side. Ten thousand at thy right hand shall fall, but it shall not come nigh unto thee.
That promise is so great, Faye, that no flood will ever overflow you. That promise is so great that no fire will ever consume you. That promise is so great that in all things we are made more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. That promise is so great that the Bible said, thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph. That promise is so great that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. That promise is so great that we are not worshiping a God who has ever suffered defeat. We're not worshiping a God who has ever been beat or subdued by any power or any force. But our God is batting a thousand. He's never lost a battle. He's never seen a battle he couldn't win. He's never seen a person he couldn't save. He's never seen anything that would cause him to be confounded and confused. He is a God who knows all things. He is a God who has all power. He is a God who is everywhere present. He is a God for us and he is our our great God and he always causes us to win and triumph in every battle and every instance we are made more than conquerors oh 10,000 may fall at your right hand praise God we read of insignificant folks have you ever heard of a man named Shamgar no, Pastor, well, you probably haven't heard that name. He's not very popular. He's not listed among mighty men. He was just an old dirt farmer. Just an old dirt farmer. The children of Israel had done wickedly, of course, as they were prone to do, ventured off into sin and were under the affliction and the oppression of the Philistines. And the Philistines would come through and ravage the crops tear up everything, burn down buildings. And every day, Shamgar would go and meet with the men, his friends. And he would hear them say, last night the Philistines came and took all of my cattle away. Last night the Philistines came and burned my crops. Last night the Philistines came and destroyed this and destroyed that. And he got to where he was hearing that every way he turned was defeat, defeat, defeat. And he made up his mind. He said, I, 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 I tell you what, that may come to my house, but it'll not happen if I have a breath in me or have an ounce of strength. And the Bible said, with an ox goad, you know what an ox goad is? It's a stick that's pointed on one end. You know what you do with it? You poke the oxen in the side to make him go along and plow and move. All he had in his hand to fight with was a stick. And when the Philistines showed up, the Bible said, and Shamgar slew of the Philistines a thousand men with an ox goad, and he delivered Israel. What are you saying, Pastor? The odds may be against you, but if God is for you, the numbers might not be in your favor. It may be foolish for you to make such claims as I will overcome, I will win, I'll get through this. That may be sound like foolishness to others, but if you know in your heart that God is your provider, that God is your source, that when storm clouds come and when enemy armies gather, that God will see you through if you'll just be faithful and stand in the gap and make up the hedge. There was... There was a man named Eleazar, and the Bible said they were fighting, and said everywhere around him there were people falling by the sword, and suddenly everybody sounded retreat and turned and ran. I preach this message sometimes. It's called When Others Flee. When Others Flee. When the accepted wisdom is run for your life. When the popular opinion is, you better get out of there while the getting's good. But for Eleazar, he said, I'm, I don't have running on my mind. And I don't have turning back on my mind. And I don't have going around and, and tucking tail and, and running from the enemy. That's not what I came here to do. And the Bible said he tightened the sword and 
tightened the hilt and he stood out and he began fighting. And he fought and he fought and he fought until there was no other enemy to fight. He killed them all with that sword. Why? Because he said, I'm not going to give up. I will not turn around. I'm a soldier marching heaven bound on my way to something better, fighting battles as I go. But when I fight, the Lord is on my side. When I fight, his strength is available to me. When I fight, his angels fight for me. All that is good, all that is blessed, all that is godly is at my disposal because God is for me, not against me. Ten thousand may fall, but it shall not come nigh you. Another grape on my cluster. Come on, Victor. Play for me. Another grape on my cluster is this. It's called hope. Hope. What is hope, Pastor? It's believing in something and trusting in it to the extent that you believe it will enable you to persevere. Hope. That, that grape on my cluster that says hope, hope of heaven, hope of victory, hope of going to where God is, standing on this side, longing for that side, hoping. I have it. It's called in Titus 2 and 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus. In Hebrews, he said, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth into that that is within the veil. You know, there is a kind of hope that floats. You know what it's called? It's called a life preserver. It's usually got a rope tied to it to reel you in after it floats you on top of whatever you were sinking in. So there is a help that's called a floating hope. But he said the hope that we have, he said, was not a floating hope. The hope that we have goes all the way to the bottom. And it latches hold of whatever is in the bottom where I've been. Down in the bottom experiences when I had to reach up to try to touch bottom. Those times when my spiritual strength was low and I was bumping on the bottom. Praise God, that anchor went to where I was on them bottom times and those bottom confines. And in that hour when I needed hope, there was an anchor that came to my aid. And that anchor, hallelujah, Help me survive. And that anchor helped me stay put in my Christian faith and wouldn't let me waver. Wouldn't let the waves and the wind destroy me because I had an anchor, a hope, a hope. I know this morning, as well as I know my name, that there is a hope that we have for everlasting life in the presence of Jesus. We have a hope that on some ordinary day just like this day, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The Bible said, but now they desire a better country. That is in heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God because he hath prepared for them a city. What a wonderful grape that is on my cluster is that I have a hope that one day Jesus is coming back. Fast forward now thousands of years and let's get to a New Testament verse. It's in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 9 and it talks about a letter that's written to a group of Christians that have crossed over and they've entered into this new dimension of life in Christ. 
and they run into some things. In fact, they're, they're, they're saying to Paul, supposedly the writer, he says to Paul, said, it's right the opposite. Since we got saved and since we accepted Jesus, my life has turned worse because now there's persecution. There's all kind of things going on around me that I didn't have that before. When I accepted Jesus, now I've got all of these challenges. I've got all of these oppositions. I've got all of these things going on now. I thought it was going to get better, but things got worse. You see, there's one thing that, that Satan will, defight, will fight you on, and that is that hope that you have of eternal life. And Paul wrote to them that letter to the Hebrews, and he says to them, he said, one thing he says, he said, just a verse or two previous, he said, you ought to be teaching the Word of God. You ought not to be now having to be taught. You ought to be teaching. He said, you've not got past the rudimentary things about serving God, and here you are about to quit and go back. What was it they were going to go back to? They were going to go back to the old religion and go back to the old salvation. Go back to the old. And the writer said, no, no, don't you do that. Don't you go back to that, that temple worship and that Levitical system. Why? Because we've we got a better way now. We've got a better way. You can't go back. Don't you dare go back. Don't go back to a rituals and ceremonies and the ashes of an heifer and the slaying of bulls and offering their blood. And he said, that can never take away sin. Don't go back to that. We've got something better than that now. We've got a better priesthood. We've got a better way of salvation. We've got a better hope of eternal life. We've got a better thing going for us now. We've got a better promise. Latch hold of what we have. Don't lose what you got. Don't lose that great powerful potential that you have in Jesus. Don't go back. Don't go back. Stand with me, please. Well, we got grapes today, didn't we? Next week, we're probably going to get giants and grasshoppers. I wonder if there are any grasshoppers hopping around in here. You know what grasshopper is? What was it that was on that Kung Fu program that he called that, that young guy? What was he called him? I didn't hear you. He called that young initiate, that young novice, that young neophyte, all of their, those are terms for people that aren't experienced. And he says to him, he says, grasshopper, look at this grasshopper. I hope God doesn't call us a bunch of grasshoppers, don't you? Because grasshopper was what we were when we started out. The fact that he called them grasshoppers, and he said, it wasn't enough that they thought we was grasshoppers. But I got convinced myself that I was a grasshopper. It wasn't enough that somebody else called me inadequate. I became convinced myself that I was a loser and inadequate. You know, sometimes you get to reading your own fate and start believing that stuff. Sometimes... You hear all the slanderous innuendo and all the malicious slander and sayings that people say about you. And if you're not careful, you'll give in to that and start believing that lie. You're not a loser. Well, Brother Jerry, if you looked at some of the decisions I've made in my life, well, I don't care what happened in your life. You probably have done some stupid things.
I don't guess there are any grasshoppers in here that hadn't done some stupid things at some point in their life. Because hindsight, you look back on it and you say, how stupid. What kind of a moron. That's when you start believing that yourself. Biggest thing you've got to do is say this, I can. I can. I can do. I can do. All. I can do all things. I can do all things. Whose report will you believe? We shall believe the report of the Lord. Whose report will you believe? We shall believe the report of the Lord. His report says, I am healed. His report says, I am saved. His report says, I am blessed. His report says, I am a winner. His report says, I'm an overcomer. His report has faith and hope an encouragement in it. Whose report will you believe? We shall believe the report of the Lord. Well, Brother Jerry, if you could just see my, my sheet, my budget sheet, if you could just see my worksheet you'd see that it's pretty bad shape and some of the things they say about me is really true. Whose report will you believe? We shall believe the report of the Lord. I am blessed. Every day that I live, I am blessed. When I wake up in the morning or when I close my eyes to rest, I am blessed, I am blessed. When are you going to start giving a report? When are you going to say to the majority, your report is out. It may be a minority report, but I choose to receive the minority report. Praise God. Though 10,000, that's a pretty good majority. Sandy, that's 10,000 to one. Oh, the odds are against me. I can't beat that. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Though 10,000 fall, it shall not come nigh me. Praise God. Isn't that outstanding that things are destined to get better? Things are destined to get better. God's got better things for you. God's got better things for you. And you're better. You know one thing I've got that I didn't even put on the grapevine? I've got one more day closer than I was yesterday. I'm one day closer today than I was yesterday. Your mother used to sing it. I'm nearer home than I was yesterday. Too many miles behind me. Too many rivers these feet have walked through. Too many sunsets lie behind the mountain. I've got too much to gain to lose. Oh, glory. When he was on his deathbed, Dwight Moody said these words. The earth is receding and heaven is descending and I'm going home. The earth is receding and heaven is descending and I am going home. What a testimony. What a testimony. What a testimony. That next bend just might be this road's end. I'm looking for a city, aren't you? And it's builder and maker's God. What a promise it is. Thank you, God, for all of these wonderful things we have as Christians. Thank you, God, for these wonderful, outstanding discoveries we've made 
about living the life of victory in Christ. I ask you, God, that every one of us would leave this building today encouraged, blessed, and strengthened, more determined than ever before to be and do the will of God. Oh, Lord, bless this church. Lord, we know that we have needs, but the answer to all the needs we may have are found in people getting saved and knowing Jesus and occupying these seats in the house of God. Help us, Lord, to encounter that season of harvest. You said for us to pray for the harvest. Pray that the Lord would send laborers because laborers are few. Harvest is plenteous. Oh, God, help us to realize the potential and do those things, Lord, that will bless and enhance the work of God at harvest. Go with us now to our homes and our families and give us a great time of fellowship today. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. Amen. Everybody say, I'm better. better. Praise God. God go with you is my prayer.